This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time. In one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Douglas Stewart, author of the novel Young Mungo. And the truth is, is I was trying to explore what does it mean to be a man? It's sometimes it's not that men can't be these wonderfully complicated, uh, fully colorful, diverse people. It's that sometimes society expects us to be one type of way. We'll be back with Douglas Stewart after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. 
Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Scottish-American author Douglas Stewart, whose first novel, Shuggy Bane, won the Booker Prize. His short stories, Found Wanting and The Englishman, were published in The New Yorker, and he's had several essays published by LitHub. Stewart was born in Glasgow, Scotland. He has an MA from the Royal College of Art in London, and since 2000, he has lived in New York City. His new novel, Young Mungo, tells the story of 15-year-old Mungo Hamilton, who was born poor and Protestant in Glasgow and lives with his older sister who dreams of getting out and his mother who is often absent or drunk. Mungo's older brother sets a standard for violent masculinity as he is a local gang leader with a reputation to uphold. Mungo is sensitive and gay and falls in love with James, who is Catholic and dreams of escaping the neighborhood. Mungo lives in fear of being found out, and just when his relationship with James is blossoming, Mungo's mother sends him on a fishing trip to Western Scotland with two drunken men she hardly knows. On the trip, Mungo faces unspeakable threats and danger and must summon all his courage to get back home. We began the discussion with Douglas Stewart talking about finding writing later in life. I was a young man, actually, before writing came to me late in life. Reading actually came to me quite late in life. Uh, You know, I grew up in poverty uh, in Scotland uh, during the Thatcher years, and books just weren't something that uh, my community embraced. Um, Didn't make us as young men any less compassionate or creative or curious. It just, you know, books weren't part of our culture. It wasn't how we got our culture. And so I only really started to read when I was about 17 or 18. And and part of that was the fact that, you know, reading requires an awful lot of peace, both within the reader and in the reader's environment. And I just didn't have those uh, when I was growing up. And so I actually went into textiles as, as, as a young man. That was a very good, honest, creative Scottish trade. And but at the whole time that I'm working in the visual arts, my my love of literature, my love of reading is is just blossoming. And so I actually didn't ever think I would end up living in New York, but I moved to New York in 2000 to start working for these big international fashion brands, uh, Calvin Klein, Ralph Lauren, The Gap. And I'm actually at my height of career in fashion when I sit down to to really write in earnest. And, And that's really in 2008. And, you know, my debut novel, being Shaggy Bane, took 10 years to write. And and there was many reasons that it took 10 years. It, it took 10 years because I was uh, just in love with the process of writing and I was enjoying it so much. I didn't place any expectations on myself, but also because I was teaching myself to write. I didn't have an MFA. I didn't have a circle of writer friends. And so I had to take my time, I had to fail, I had to fail in private and and leave myself a lot of time between subsequent drafts so that I could be as objective as I could because I didn't actually have anyone to really share the work with. Um, but really it was a, it was a wonderful 10 year journey. Do you remember the first book that made you cry? The first book that made me cry, I think that has to be Jude the Obscure uh, by Thomas Hardy. I think I felt so deeply for Jude Foley and I, and I could really see him in 1980s Glasgow, you know, this young man from, 
from the working class who sees uh, the aspiration of the city, the university. And because of his, the things that come up in his life, the, the women, the children, the, the way fate handles him, he couldn't ever get there. And I, and I really saw that. I felt that within the young men around me. And, and I think that book stayed with me. And in fact, it, it's one of the major inspirations for, for Shaggy Bain. The reason I asked that is because I, I was curious if when you come to reading li- later in life, mm-hmm. the sort of empathy it teaches you and if you, you know, so many people have the experience of being really moved by a book much younger and just wondering if that was m- maybe more profound for someone who came later to really uh, understand the power of literature and what it can do for people. I think so. And I think also what it did for me was it really staunched uh, this huge well of loneliness inside myself. And and it was the first time that I really had that power of literature to connect me with someone outside of my community or, or, or my or my world. You know, I didn't have an enormous amount of mobility as a child. We didn't go on big vacations. We didn't really leave the part of the city that I grew up in. I didn't meet anyone from the middle class other than my, my teachers, you know, maybe my GP or my doctor. And so I didn't have a very grand world view. And when I read Jude the Obscure at 17, and not only are you traveling through time, you're traveling through geography and social class, you suddenly understand that the human condition is universal and you're not quite as alone on this, this, you know, this planet as you think you are. Um, and that was what really shaped me, but it's also quite an adult book. You know, it's, it was one of, uh, it was hardly criticized out of all of Thomas Hardy's works uh, because of how it looks at the working class, how it looks at poverty. And, and it's a very tragic book at the end. Um, and so it was quite an adult book for me to start reading with, but it, it also, um, gave me a sense of bravery, I think, to see, to read something, first of all, that was that incredibly powerful. With Young Mungo, did you simultaneously write this while you were writing the um, your first novel as well? No, but there was certainly an, an, an overlap there. Because I was working uh, in isolation and working all day in fashion in New York, um, I didn't really have anywhere for my books to go. And so when I finished Shuggy at about the eight year mark, it was really feeling like a finished manuscript. He went up to the top corner of my desk and he, and he sat there. Um, and that was because I didn't know if I would ever be published. I didn't know if ever I wanted it to be published. It's an incredibly personal book to me, but I still had a desire to write. And so Shuggy really hadn't even begun his journey and I begin to to plot and to craft Young Mungo. And so in a way they overlap in that sense, meaning I wasn't writing a book and then publishing it and then turning to my next novel. I was building a body of work. But that's also true with my short stories and and also with my third novel. I had been working for an awfully long time before I thought maybe I should see if I if I, if I could be published. So it's 1990s in Glasgow and Young Mungo, uh, Mungo Hamilton, who is named after a saint, is living with his family in a, in a, he's poor and he lives kind of like in a tenement. There was a word you used for the housing. Yeah, it's a scheme collectively, like our, we call our estates or our project schemes. Um, but yeah, and he lives up a tenement close in the, in the east end of the city. Yeah, so he lives with his his mother and his sister, 
And they, his mother is a terrible alcoholic and she really abdicates much of her motherly responsibilities to the alcohol and finds love where she can. And whenever she finds love, she doesn't even admit that she has children and she is very absent. And Mungo's oldest brother, Hamish, is basically in a gang, a gang leader um, for the Protestants and um, makes a lot of trouble with the Catholics. There's a lot of, um, uh, of bad blood going on between them because of the time and society, what's going on. And he's really a thug and he can be violent. And then the middle child, Jody, is she just wants to get out. She has bigger aspirations. She wants to go to university. She is also being taken advantage of by a teacher at her school, which you don't get the sense is very uncommon with um, girls her age in that and that economic sphere. And then there's young Mungo who is so, he has such a good heart and he's so innocent and shy and he knows that he doesn't want the life of his older brother, but he's being very pressured to, to be in that life. He has so much compassion for his mother. He always forgives her. And in that way, he's, he just gets walked over sometimes because he's so sweet. And he's, he's kind of the person that lives in the scheme in his little area that draws people together. Many people where he live has a big heart for him and they help him and he helps them. And all of this kind of violence is raging around him and he's coming to terms with some of his sexuality and he meets a young Catholic boy that he falls in love with. And then at the same time, you're going between two time periods where he's meeting and falling in love with this this young boy and just trying to put words to who he is and how he feels and at the same time, you go a little bit into the future where his mother has him go off with these two men that he she knows from her AA group to go camping at a lock to maybe make him more manly. And these men turn out to be very dangerous. So the story is the interplay of his awakening and his really understanding and coming to his own to have some agency in the world with all these forces that are against him. And it's really about class and religion and our own limitations that maybe we can break out against. That's right. Yeah. And, and I think, I hope it's a book about belonging and love and, and also the deep loneliness some of us can feel. It's when you mentioned, you meant you explained that beautifully better than I actually have ever explained my work, but you know, Mungo is a motherless son and, and, or he's a parentless son, in fact, and all of them are, and he's a young man at 15 in the working class. I think we often don't have the full childhood we deserve and we become men a little bit earlier. And he's wrestling with the question of what makes a man around here? What, what do they expect of me? And, and his role models are often uh, quite hard. Um, his brother has come up, Hamish has come up after the Thatcher years and, and he's infected with a little bit of cynicism. Uh, he doesn't see such a bright future and he's trying to have his younger brother limit his expectations too. And all the while pulling him into gang violence, pulling him into petty crime. Um, and, and Mungo's a brighter kid than that. He's an incredibly anxious young man, but he could be anything. He's only, he's only 15. 
Um, but it's really about when a family comes apart. And I think I'm always writing about this in one way or another. When a family comes apart or when it disintegrates, then what is this new family we make for ourselves? And, and that can often be a very queer experience because we're forced to do that sometimes because we're rejected by our own families or, or our own families don't always know or understand us fully. And so we're always making uh, a new community for ourselves, I think, oftentimes. And Mungo is certainly going through that. He's he's a young man that's coming of age in the early 90s. It is, you know, after the, the first spike of the AIDS epidemic, you would see. So he's been born into a time of fear. He is under uh, a government policy called Thatcher's Section 28, which... Uh, is against talking about any kind of alternative sexuality in schools or in communities. And he's also uh, many years before the first Pride March. Um, you know, we still have a long way to come with gay rights. So he is, as well as struggling with what it means to be a man, just very lonely. He can't see other, no one else would have visibility to stand up and say, I am gay in this community. And so he 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 feels very lonely. And, and part of that came from my own experience, I think, um, and also a little bit of wish fulfillment, how I used to stand at the tenement window and look out and just wish I could see someone like me or meet a friend. And so I give Mongo a friend. He finds, uh, he finds a, a very uh, trustworthy, uh, lovely young man, a very solid young man in James, Jameson. Uh, but unfortunately, as well as breaking one of the taboos, which is falling in love with another young man, they break another taboo for the East End of Glasgow, which is one of the young men is Protestant and the other is Catholic. And Glasgow is a place that didn't have the sectarian divides in the way that Northern Ireland did, but we couldn't help but be influenced and affected by it in the, in the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s. And oftentimes your allegiance with, uh, you know, Protestantism or Catholicism is something that's reinforced through the sports team that you support. It's reinforced through the school you went to, even just the housing scheme you grew up on. And, and so for these young men, uh, violence between the two religious groups is a, is a recreation almost. It's a way to pass time. It's a way to build reputation. It's a way to uh, fulfill some tribal needs. The last word I wrote down in my notes was just masculinity. And mm. what what did it mean to be masculine, like the pressures that Mungo felt and how you rendered that so beautifully in the book? And were you really conscious of that growing up? Yeah, I try to uh, try to show quite a broad range of masculinity, both the type that conforms and the type that just cannot ever conform because it's not naturally within uh, the character's nature. And and certainly for myself, I was a, a young man who was terrified of much of the the masculinity that was around me and how incredibly narrow it was. And I've always felt like I was performing my masculinity in some way. And I was both terrible at it and terrified by it. You know, I didn't have any interest in sports or in heavy drinking or in fighting or, or in chasing girls. And, and when you can't do those things in a tight knit community, you, you stand to the outside, you fall to the outside. And, and so I was always trying to fit in somehow so I wouldn't be conspicuous amongst my peers. And, you know, I was supremely conspicuous because I think, you know, you can't ever truly hide who you really are. And so that's left a, an indelible mark on me. And 
And I try to write about this spectrum of masculinity. I don't believe actually in the phrase toxic masculinity because I don't think masculinity is toxic. I just think it has lots of different frequencies. And there are some people who have power within masculinity, some people who can use it to make themselves harder. And then there are some people who find ways to be gentle and tender uh, in it. And, and my characters, I'm often known as someone I think who writes about very hard masculinity. But actually, a lot of my characters are incredibly kind and gentle and tender. I think about Leek Bain. I think about Eugene McNamara. These are men who don't always do the right thing, um, but they're not bad men, um, fundamentally. And obviously, Mungo and James are, are these characters that just cannot fit in. I was fascinated by these this long literary tradition of the gang novel. If we think about Graham Greene's Brighton Rock or, or No Mean City, which is a almost a, a landmark book in Scotland, there's this uh, literary culture of writing about gangs and razor gangs and territorial gangs. But for me, I never saw uh, a queer male represented in it. And of course, we were there and we were running with them and we were trying to fit in. But when I was thinking about Young Mungo, I thought, how interesting would it be to have this boy that's that's in this world and just cannot belong? Was there anything healing for you to write this sort of alternate reality where Mungo got to meet the boy that he he looked out his window and saw that, he, that that there was an object of his affection that he could actually see as opposed to looking out into the abyss and how did it impact your psyche now yeah I think there's always uh, a catharsis for me in writing there's always uh, a desire to understand some pain from earlier in life or, or, or some societal conditions that I wouldn't have had much agency over as a young man. But it was really, truly wish fulfillment to look out the window and have this other young man almost across the street looking out his window and, and looking for, for a friend too. And one of the things, of course, that you learn as an adult that you don't learn as a young man is of course, there are queer people everywhere. And of course, they were on the same streets that I grew up in or in the same community. And one of the things that always struck me is when I when I grew up and when I went to college and then I went to university after that, I would have people from my past come out and find me and say, hi, I just, I'm ready now to tell you I am also, I was also gay. And these are people I'd known my whole life that I'd gone to school with, but hadn't had it wasn't the right wasn't the right time for them for whatever reason it was and no one can come out before their own time and so that loneliness i knew would have been you know something that could have been so helped by a friend in those times and it's and it's really stayed with me so writing this story in a way is is answering that something that really struck me too is how you wrote about violence and i don't know if this was just how I read it or something you were conscious of. But when Mungo would go out with Hamish and they would get in fights and people were beat up, it, was, it wasn't it was like gratuitously graphic, but I saw what was happening to the two characters. There's also sexual violence in there. And that is much more restrained and much mm-hmm. less described and leaves more to the imagination of the reader. Mm-hmm. Just wondering about that. Yeah, I I think the physical violence between the men is something that happens out in the open in many ways, and it some of the scenes with the gang violence become almost like battle scenes where where there's two armies charging at each other, and they both feel like they have very noble causes, even though they're these 
you know, probably misguided poor young men in the East End of Glasgow. And there's a ballet to it, and there was uh, a real sort of plotting that had to happen about where characters moved, where they took their place in this army, what it revealed about their characters, how close to the front of the battle line they would be and how far to the back, that actually it felt like a very complicated thing to write. Um, and also for there to be tension and surprise and and like any battle, I suppose, uh, some unexpected outcome, some losses, some gains. The sexual violence was a very private thing. It happened, and there's so much pride and shame within it as well when sexual violence happens to a young man, uh, to anybody. But but with a young man, there's so much silence around it. And there's there's very uh there are there's an idea that for these young men whose masculinity is everything, is every currency that they have in this community, that if they were somehow uh a victim of sexual violence, it would decrease their own masculinity. And so there's a clenching to it that I felt I had to really bring to the prose and, and make it quite staccato and quite sharp and quite cut off in a way because I couldn't, first of all, I didn't want to describe it in any huge detail because it's such an ugly thing to write about. But also it's quite, a, oh, oh, it's a stoic thing. It, it returns to a place of silence really quickly because uh, it hurts on every single level. And so I had to write about the violence in different ways, but but I actually only ever write about violence as a writer to make tenderness shine brighter. Uh, I do write about violence quite a lot, I'm coming to realize, but I'm not inherently drawn to it as a person or as an adult, um, or even as a reader in a way, but I am drawn to how characters care for one another, how they just demonstrate these quiet moments of tenderness. And I find if you can write about its opposite, it makes the thing you're actually trying to explore just that much more precious and endangered. And what you were saying earlier about um that you write about violence in a way to explore the tenderness, it, it, what it, the impact that it can have later is that someone like Mungo, who is very tender and sweet and kind and kind of swept into a world, both when he went camping and with his, the pressure to go into the family business with Hamish is, is someone who doesn't really want to resort to violence ever. So, you know, also that when he has moments when he has to, that there's that you understand him and that tenderness even more because he has pushed so far to the edge. You understand how dire his situation is. It's something uh, that often happens to men. I think it happens to men of all classes, but it happens certainly to working class men where people don't want violence from us, but they also expect it sometimes and they ask us to do it. They ask us to participate in it. Um, and it's seen as a very masculine thing to defend someone, to stand up and, and hit someone, to answer someone with violence before violence can come to you. And, and you know, Mungo just cannot man up in that way. But the women, even the women around him are at, keep it saying to man up, man up. You know, they ask for this violence from this very gentle young man in a way that he uh, feels very unnatural to him. And the truth is, is I was trying to explore what does it mean to be a man? It's sometimes it's not that men can't be these wonderfully complicated 
fully colorful, diverse people. It's that sometimes society expects us to be one type of way. And that can be really reinforced down through class so when a community especially is quite small and tight. And Mungo just isn't that man. Um, he's He never can be. And actually, Leek Bain wasn't that man in Shaggy Bain either, the middle brother. He was a very gentle, contemplative, artistic young man. And yet he was also capable of extreme violence because he knew sometimes he had to stop something before it actually started. And so Mungo, in a way, is just really trapped. He has no one to teach him how to be an adult, how to grow up. And yet everyone is telling them what they want from him. I mean, so many of these characters are in a power dynamic with um, either more someone who has more money than them, someone who has more power status than them, someone who is easier to be violent. I mean, you see that with a lot of the women in the novel as well, that they are either trading in their families to find love like his mother or um, his sister gets into some compromising situations with a power dynamic from a teacher at school. Uh, you see a neighbor who is being abused by her husband and she really has excuses for him about how hard his life is. So it's not like only the men have it hard. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think what I try to do often is to just show how complex life is um, and never to try and paint a, a bad character or a good character, because I think people are always reacting to the situation around them and, and trying to get by. And I certainly knew that from, and I think anyone who comes from a place that deindustrialized rapidly, when, when life flips so quickly for uh, huge swaths of people or a community or a town, then you understand that people sometimes have to react to the community and the society and the events around them and do whatever they can to survive. That was certainly the case of the character um, Lizzie Campbell in Shaggy Bane. She had always been seen as this very staunch, upright Catholic grandmother. And it was important for me to just keep within the story the the flashback to her youth when she was a young woman when her husband had gone to war and suddenly you see that she too had done whatever it takes to survive um and yet she in the years to come had been quite harsh in judging her daughter and i think that's human life we don't know how we'll react until we're faced with the 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 conditions that that we come across you know we all think we're good people and or we'll act a certain way until until something actually happens to us but one of the truths about poverty is that we are limited in our ability to, you know, to have agency. We're limited, certainly in mobility, but sometimes we don't get as many choices as other people have. We can't up and leave a situation. We can't just rent a new house on the other side of town. We can't, you know, take ourselves away to a spa for two weeks or, or really uh, distance ourselves from neighbors that, that are consuming us. And so one of the things when I spoke about violence and tenderness is the characters in my books have to take life as it comes at them. And sometimes that is sadness with joy or sadness with humor. You know, humor is a really important uh, tool in all of my writing because, first of all, it's part of life. But also sometimes it's the only way you can cope with life uh, or you can pick yourself up or you can mend over some trauma or some crack. And so humor plays an enormous role in my in my work. But humor often comes in the saddest moments or in the, the, the darkest moments of the characters. 
such as tenderness comes in in violent moments, or more likely during tenderness comes a little bit of violence. There's a quote, humor is the groan made gay. And it's, it's really just the idea that humor comes after pain and mm-hmm. that it has to. Uh, yeah, I think I think humor is often a way, the only therapy we have sometimes. Um, it's a way to process things at an arm's length and to look at it from a different angle um, in a way that won't cause us pain again. And it's also a way for, especially for men, uh, especially, sorry to keep talking about working class men, but it's a way where we get to really have some kind of group therapy to say, I see you and I see your pain. And I can't quite say to you, I'm so sorry that that happened to you and this and this is going on. But if I turn it into a joke, I can let you know that I'm going to share this moment with you. And pain is, uh, sorry, humor is a really useful tool in bringing communities together after trauma. Uh, there's something uniquely inspiring about the Glaswegian spirit, I think. I think That's why even when I'm writing about New York or anywhere else in the world, I think about it from a Glaswegian's point of view, because we have a very dark gallows humor. We have this ability to look at the world, even in tough times, and to to try and cope through laughter. There is actually a, a saying in Scotland that goes, you will have more fun at a Glaswegian funeral than you ever will at an Edinburgh wedding. And I think that talks to the resilience and the humor of of working class people, even during tough times. Yeah, I think there's also something about humor that it's so vulnerable, but you don't on the surface, it doesn't feel vulnerable, but it's probably the moments where people can be the most vulnerable because they're more honest in a way in their humor than with any other exchange that they're having. That's right. And humor also, as well as vulnerability, can be used to wound a lot. Humor is can also be another act of violence sometimes in my novels. And characters make a joke at another character's expense, or they say something which is a piercing truth. Um, I mean, Jodie makes fun of her mother. Her mother gets very uppity at one point in the book and tells Jodie that she needs to sort of stop eating like a teenage boy uh, because, you know, genetics and all of that. And Jodie just turns to her mother and says, spell it. And her mother says, well, spell what? She says, genetics, spell it. And it's such a, it's, you know, it's it's probably funnier than I'm saying to you now, but it's a really wounding moment uh, for the character of the mother in the book. We kind of saw that last night at the Oscars. I was thinking about that. I mean, obviously the Oscars and masculinity is exactly what I talk about, how there's this code of how a man should act. And uh, the fact that someone would get up on stage and strike another man instead of using words was, is, I mean, and this is an incredibly privileged, rarefied world, and still this is uh, seen as a behavior that a man should adopt. Yeah, and that nothing happened. I know. In fact, I think people are cheering on him today. I think society says that's the right way for a man to be. And so, you know, that only increases like everything as you get closer to the line of poverty because it pushes on down and and oftentimes for the men in my work the only thing they have is reputation they don't have much uh social currency they don't have much money and so the reputation is everything and you see that with the character of shug bane and shuggy bane you know he's uh, how he uses his violence against women and how he makes them adore him and then abandons them is really important for his uh, for his ego so what was it inside of you that you got out, you know, in your, in your book, so many of your characters don't even leave their neighborhood. And there's this sense of awe when they go and see other parts of Glasgow. What was inside of you that pushed you 
to want to leave? You know, I always have a, a really uh, <laughs> unsatisfying answer for that because I don't know that I did have a desire to leave. I think it was more to the point where I never felt like I belonged. And so I couldn't really put down roots. And I was a little bit untethered as a young man. And I was in not in the position after my parents died when I was very young. I was orphaned. And so whenever someone, when I was 16, 17, would give me a yes, I had to follow that yes, because I, I had to make my own way in the world. And, you know, the mobility that I write about in my novels and the, even the feeling of uh, Mungo finally seeing the other side of the city. Glasgow is an enormously diverse city. It has extreme wealth. It has some of the oldest universities in the world. It has really important cultural institutions. And I just didn't see it. Uh, and I see that reflected often in New York where I live now. I see a lot of kids in the housing projects at the end of my street that might not get to see everything that New York offers. And, and that's just one of the things that's always broken my heart, I think, about poverty. You know, the Scottish Highlands are 30 miles from, from our largest cities. It's not really that far. And yet I didn't see them until I was a young man. And yet when I met uh, people from England or I met people from America, they would always hear my accent and they would say to me, oh, Scotland, I love Scotland. I love St. Andrews. I love the Highlands. I love Loch Ness. And I would always think, oh, I've never seen them. You know, I've, I just haven't seen them. I knew less about my country than people who had come from the opposite side of the world. So in, in your effort to explore tenderness and belonging and what happens when a family, the pressures to break it apart um, are made manifest, did you learn anything by the end that you didn't go in understanding? Yes. The very first thing that happened, I think, was I let go of an awful lot of anger through the process of writing my books. I think when you grow up in quite a powder keg as a child in a place that is touched by deprivation and addiction and uh, abandonment, uh, then you can be quite angry. You can feel like there was a lot of harm visited upon you. And in creating these works of fictions, rather than creating something that was a memoir, I had to really wrestle with the motivations of characters or the social conditions that brings everyone to this point in the novel. And the catharsis for me came from that. It just came from trying to deeply understand the motivations of my characters, not to keep understanding the hurt that they cause, uh, but what brought them there. And, and much of why the first draft of Shuggy Bane was such an incredibly long, long piece of work was because I had to really understand Agnes. I had to, I wrote a lot of scenes that didn't end up in the final book. I even wrote scenes in the future for Agnes where she went to Las Vegas and she was in New York and she went to the Museum of Modern Art. Things that you will know if you read the book, she couldn't possibly ever have done. But I had to understand her, her perspective in the world. And, and much of, of my own writing is about actually understanding my mother. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a man who lost his mother at a very early age and, and that grief has stayed with me my entire life. I try uh, to to cope with that grief through my creativity and to and to get answers for it. Why would a bright, beautiful, generous, gregarious woman uh, feel like there was no hope in life? Why would she turn to addiction? Why would that addiction kill her? And those are questions that I might never have the answers for. But another thing I'm trying to do is I was robbed of the experience of knowing my mother as an adult. Um, and getting to know her as something other than just my mother, because of course she's also, or she would also have been an individual. And so part of my uh, part of my exercise in writing Shaggy Bane was to take that character as 
a woman, as a wife, as uh, a friend, a foe, as a daughter, as a neighbor, and try to really make her feel very rounded in that way and, and understand the prism through which she was viewed by all these different people as a way to also understand, I suppose, my own mother. So what are your thoughts on redemption? I think redemption is a, can be a very faint thing. I think often in literature, redemption has to is quite a bright, uh, quite a loud thing. And I think redemption for most of us, as with hope, um, can be a very faint, uh, indistinct thing. I often think of hope as just the strength to get up the next day and keep going. I think even the fact that we show up day after day is quite a hopeful thing. If we return to care for someone, if we just dust ourselves off and we keep going, that is in a way hope. And I feel the same way about redemption. I don't think that every character, every human being deserves it. I don't think they'll ever get there. I don't think sometimes they mean it. Um, But I do think it can also be a very quiet thing, for instance, and not to spoil it for for uh, any readers, but there there are characters at the end of Young Mungo that are redeemed. Uh, They make a sacrifice at the end, and also characters who you would think of as really wonderful, upstanding characters who let our protagonist down. One of the things I was curious about, and I don't really know if it's hard for you to articulate or not, but sometimes when you read books, it's like this beautifully rendered thing, but the the plot that literary, sometimes literary writers don't work on the plot as hard or it's just too hard to figure out. So there's these convenient ways that things come together. And one of the things your book really had was you created some conundrums where you felt like the stakes were high. So for instance, without giving it away, Hamish really pressured Mungo to come fight with him and and Mungo didn't want to but Hamish set up some conditions for him that he was like you basically have to and Mungo realized he had to go fight with the gang or something of of real value to him would be lost and I'm wondering if those coming up with those consequences and those cause and effect is something that really that you struggle with or if that's comes easily to you? I think it, it differs on different days. Uh, I had a, I think a lot about suffocation or claustrophobia or people running out of options in my writing when, when all the, the paths become blocked to them and you feel them being fenced in almost like sheep being herded by a sheepdog. And Mungo is that young man, you know, he, he has nowhere to turn and, and he must, for the sake of his own reputation and for some other reasons that the reader will discover, show up for this battle against the Catholics and he, and he doesn't want to. But it was about increasing the stakes for him, tightening the vice all the way throughout the book until he almost can't breathe and he can't get out of it. And and what he wants is very simple things. It's something that we all want. He wants to be at peace. He wants to be in love. Um, And yet he cannot have that in the world that he is in. So... I was aware that I was trying to increase the tension on the characters all the way through the books, on Mungo particularly, and both through both of the timelines, because he's really got a lot to navigate. But you also have to allow a book to live a little bit, and you have to you have to make something feel like it's inevitable, but also unexpected. It can't be just one of those two things. You know, the characters present things to you. For instance, in when writing Young Mungo, I had a very clear idea of what 
the plot would be and, and, and where we would get to. But there were characters when I began writing the book that I didn't know existed that become integral to the story. And those are the characters that live in the tenement close with Mungo. You know, the neighbours, the family he starts to assemble when his own family comes apart. There's Mrs. Campbell, the elderly neighbour downstairs, who's missing her own sons and and gives the children blocks of cheese whenever she sees them because she worries about them being malnourished. And then there's uh, Mr. Calhoun, who is this very quiet uh, character that lives on the ground floor, who has a has a past of his own, but ultimately becomes Mungo's savior in a way. And I didn't know that they would be important to the plot and also important to character development when I started to write. So you have to go in with a plan or you can go in with a plan, but you also have to be ready to abandon that plan or to revise it. Even though it's how you grew up and it's the voices that you hear in your head, is it difficult to write with a dialect that you keep consistent for so many pages? Yeah, I think that's actually one of the hardest things about uh, I found in the writing journey, especially in the book of, especially in Shaggy Bane, because the characters, although they are all Glaswegian and they come from the same social class, they use their accents for different ways. Agnes and by extension, her children, the Bane family, are looking to transcend their social class. They're looking to present as though they're better than the people around them. And so they speak almost as I sound with this uh, very strong received pronunciation, a very clear uh, Queen's English, as we call it in the UK. And that, in a way, is uh, about shame and it's about pride. It's about uh, how we were taught as young people to reject our regional accents or our true dialects because that wasn't the proper way to be. And if you spoke uh, with a Liverpudlian accent or a Mancunian accent or a Glaswegian accent, then somehow you were less than acceptable in society. But then the characters around the Bain family speak they don't have that same aspiration of, of upward mobility. And so they speak in their natural Glaswegian dialect. And it was incredibly difficult to keep plotting that throughout the book to make sure that every time a character spoke, they spoke with their own voice and not with someone else's. Um, because there's contractions, there's changes in syntax, there's uh, grammatical errors that each character uses and relies upon. There's just vocal tics. And so to like plot that out, I almost had to create a Bible uh, as I was writing the characters and saying, no, you know, Eugene doesn't say going to, he says, gone. And, you know, uh, Agnes doesn't say I, she says yes. And, you know, it really became these quite extensive Bibles. But when I was writing the book, I had to think about who my reader was. And first and foremost, my reader is my characters. I couldn't possibly write a book that felt it was immersed in this world with Shuggy or with Mungo and then exclude them from, from, from the book. And that informed everything I write in dialogue and dialect, but it also informs the prose. When I think about light, when I think about a draft, when I think about how people look on the street, I wanted to write about it as the characters would see it, uh, so that I didn't feel like someone who had now ascended to the middle class, who was now within this literary circle, who was then going to explain the working class. So I wanted to ask you, too, about endings, if it's important for you, how, how hard you work at endings. Um, maybe this one just came to you. But how important is it for you to maybe leave it more open-ended versus more definite? Yeah, I think before I'm a writer, I'm a reader. And what I like most in books is a feeling of bereavement when I finish, a feeling of, please don't leave me, please don't go away. I want the characters to remain in my life. 
And so I think about my stories as really visiting characters in the middle of their life, just in this moment, and that they were both alive before I introduced them on the page, and they will continue to live on well beyond my books. And, you know, even to the point where I sometimes sit and imagine that a character from one book could call up a character from another book. You know, even as I'm writing my third novel, I think about a very interwoven tapestry in that way. And so I like to leave the novels with the sense that there's more life to come, because surely that's it for most of us. You know, some of us perhaps might die at the end, but but for most of us, we, we still have to fight on, we still have to continue. And also, I think because I'm writing books that deal with... Um, quite big social questions. What happens to people that are born into poverty, that are that are stung by addiction, that start so far behind in life? Then I want almost the reader to be involved in answering that question by the end, to really uh, muse on it and think about it. And so I like to conclude the book and to give them a sense of hope at the end, but I don't like to nail it down so much that they don't have to sort of worry a little for the characters themselves. Can you read something by another author that influenced you as a writer? This passage is from Morven Caller by the Scottish author uh, Alan Warner. It was a book that published in the 90s and it had an enormous influence on me because it's written in dialect, but it's written in a very spare prose that almost feels to me quite urgent, almost like poetry, uh, like beat poetry, in fact. But this is a section from the centre of the book. Uh, where the two main characters have come in from a night out uh, in the wee hours and they go to somebody's grannies for a bit of, uh, you know, for a bit of warmth by the fire. In the port, Cootie's Jean opened the door. She used a walking frame. You've been on the randan, you couple of wee tinkers, and your mother's up to high dough. Get by the blazing fire then. You must be perished, the both of yous. Couple of wee monkeys. Been at a right, horora borealis. A right heli up aye. Granny, this is Morvin from the superstore. Hello, Granny Femister, I says. Get the whistling Jenny on, Cootie's Jean shouted. By the fire, we peeled her stockings right off, and the blood came back into her fingers and toes. Lana phoned her mum. You heard my name in whispers. Then I held a mug of tea in both hands, and Lana made buttered toast. Cootie's Jean says... Away and get into a piping hot bath, the both of yous, and the first one out gets the prettiest dress. She laughed like she was in hysterics as she got down in her armchair. The bath had a rail for Cootie's jean. There was a shower curtain, but no shower. This was so Cootie's jean could pull it for a bit of privacy when the home help got her out of the bath. Me and Lana sat in with her knees snug under each other's oaksters. Do you want to say anything more about why you chose that? Yeah, I mean, this is one of my favorite passages from a book that I adore from from start to finish. But I think what is incredible about it is how quickly it introduces a character and you can paint a picture of the character of Kuru's Jean, the grandmother, uh, both of her physicality and also of her warmth and her humor and and the affection that she feels for, for these two girls who've come in after a night out, uh, you know, and... It's such a joyous use of language and of Scots, you know, the line uh, when she says, you know, you couple of wee tinkers and your mother's up to high dough. High dough obviously is the musical scale, but it lets you know how sort of 
uh, annoyed and anxious someone is because they're climbing and climbing in pitch. And it's just uh, a really warm, really human moment uh, that I, I try, honestly, to capture in a lot of my own work. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. This is actually the opening of Young Mungo. As they neared the corner, Mungo halted and shrugged the man's hand from his shoulder. It was such an assertive gesture that it took everyone by surprise. Turning back, Mungo squinted up at the tenement flat and his eyes began to twitch with one of their nervous spasms. As his mother watched him through the ear of weak pattern of the neck curtains, she tried to convince herself that his twitch was a happy wink, a lovely Morse code that telegraphed everything would be okay. F-I-N-E. Her youngest son was like that. He smiled when he didn't want to. He would do anything just to make other people feel better. Momo swept the curtain aside and leaned on the window frame like a woman looking for company. She raised her tea mug in one hand and tapped the glass with her pearlescent pink nails. It was a colour a color she had chosen to make her fingers appear fresher because if her hands looked younger, then so might her face, so might her entire self. As she looked down upon him, Mungo shifted again, his feet turning towards home. She fluttered her painted nails and chewed him away. Go. And tell me why you chose that. Well, you asked me earlier if endings were difficult for me, and I don't find endings difficult. I actually find beginnings much, much harder. And I spend a lot of time struggling with the first paragraph, the first page of a novel, uh, because you want it to be perfect as the thing your eye lands on the most often. But I come to the realization that actually you almost can't write the first page until you write the last page. Uh, you can't write it until you have finished the book. And so it's the part that I revise the most, but I'm coming to a state of acceptance that I have to almost let that go. I, I'm not a writer that begins the first page and then it's set in stone and we follow from there because I think a book is a living, breathing thing. And over the years that you take to write it, it will change and reveal new things to you. And so that is a page that I've written most often. And, and the word go might seem like a trivial word there, but that dismissal by his mother, that casting away, that abandonment is mirrored by a pulling towards in the last pages. And I I wouldn't have known that until I'd finished the book. Where do you write? In my head. What do you do or where you, do you go to get away from writing? I find I can't escape it. Uh, the only thing would be perhaps to lose myself in a video game. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My long-suffering husband. How have you dealt with rejection? By never expecting too much in the first place. And what is your favorite word? Gallus. Thank you so much for your time and your care in this conversation. I'm so appreciative. Thank you so much. Thank you for all the creative nourishment you give us and the community that you've created. I'm, I'm honored to be here today. Thank you. If you like today's interview with Douglas Stewart, author of Young Mungo, check out my interview with Garth Greenwell on his novel, What Belongs to You. We talked about sex work, cruising culture, and teaching as an openly gay man. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 350 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft ADOW. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. 
Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips for my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Keith O'Brien, No Violet Bulaweo, Jacinda Townsend, Ada Limon, and Soon Wiley. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.